You know, this sermon series has been quite interesting to me anyway. I don't know if I've ever done anything like this. This is kind of like, you know, the old TV shows where you had to wait a week to find out what's happening next. Do you remember those things? You know, remember the old Batman show where uh, all of a sudden the Cape Crusader was tied up and in a burning car and was about to go over the cliff and you heard the announcer say, well, Batman escaped. Well, the Cape Crusader make it through this peril and, and you would wonder, Gosh, I wonder if he is going to live through all that. Of course, you knew he would because they had to have the show the next week. But, you know, this wasn't the Game of Thrones where they killed off everybody that you liked. Anyone that's familiar with that show knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, this series has been building upon a story. That's been interesting, isn't it? And we've talked about coming home through this story that Luke has presented to us in this very first chapter. We've stayed in one chapter this whole time. And do you all remember what we've talked about? Hopefully you do. We've talked about coming home to good news. Remember when Zechariah went to the temple, he was there uh, before the Lord, and the Lord sent an angel and said, Zechariah, you're going to have a baby. And, you know, he didn't believe that. I want to talk about that in just a second. And, and then the, the next week, we, we hear of Mary being approached uh, by an angel. And the angel said, Mary, even though you're not married, you're going to have a child. As we said, you're coming home. We're coming home to possibilities of what God can do in and through us. And, and then last week, you heard Jeff so eloquently talk about as Mary and this pregnant wife of Zechariah, Elizabeth, get together and talk, and the baby within Elizabeth leaps with joy, and we talk about it this season, we can come home to joy. And today, we talk about coming home to compassion. And so, we're going to look at what happens when this wonderful news is brought home to us through Zechariah, the father of this unexpected baby born to he and Elizabeth. Here's what Zechariah says in the first chapter, starting with verse 67. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy or the tender compassion of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
The child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly in Israel. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're here at this setting that as the text will say a few verses before what I just read, Elizabeth has had this baby and all the village, all the people around them are excited because as the text will say that God has shown compassion to this woman in her old age, she has had a son. And everybody's all excited. They're happy for Elizabeth. She's a good gal. They're happy that she has this baby. And on the eighth day, and the day in which the book of Tobit says that they name the baby when the child is circumcised, the whole community gathers around for a big celebration. It's like having a baptismal party after a child is baptized and everyone comes to celebrate. There's cake and ice cream and everybody's all there. Well, the whole village is there to celebrate that this child is being named and claimed as a, a, a baby that is part of the covenant community. And everybody says, well, I reckon they're going to call the baby Junior, right? You can name him for old Zach. And she says, no, that's not the case at all. His name will be Yohanan. Yahweh is gracious. Yohanan, you don't have anybody in your family named that way. What are you doing that for? Is that, you know, this is maybe your only baby. You need to name him Junior. She said, no, his name is Yohanan. Yahweh is gracious. And they don't trust the woman here in this story, you see. So Zechariah, deaf mute that he is, is sitting over there in the corner. Remember, he struck deaf and mute when he didn't believe what the angel had said to him. And so they go over to him and they start making signs and they write something down. Hey, isn't this baby supposed to be named Junior? And he gets the paper and whatever he's writing with. And he said, no, his name is Yohanan. Yahweh is gracious. And everyone's amazed because immediately his ears are unstopped and he begins to speak. And can't you picture the scene, y'all? This fella, this old man gets the baby and with much tenderness in his voice and his eyes moisten because his prayers, his wife's prayers have been answered. He begins to proclaim the compassion of God to the world. And he utters what I just read to you, known as the Benedictus, the Latin for, blessed be the God of Israel. In his great emotion, filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to proclaim what this baby will be and what God is going to be doing in their midst. See, this baby born to them is a sign and a symbol, not only of the compassion God shows to this older couple, but what the compassion that God is going to show not only to the people of Israel, but to all people. For God's compassion and mercy will come down from on high. And as, as uh, Zechariah says through the power of the Holy Spirit, that all our enemies are going to be defeated. Did you hear that? Our enemies are going to be taken care of. God's mercy is going to be there. And those things that are oppressing us, those people who are oppressing us are going to be taken away. 
Now, you might say to yourself, well, wait a minute, Zechariah. We, we know the rest of the story. We're looking at it from 2,000 years back. You're saying that the Roman Empire that's oppressing Israel is going to be destroyed. You know, Psalm 18 says that, the, that you're quoting here says that there will be a Davidic king reigning for a, on, the crown, on a throne forever. He'll be crowned for eternity. What, what are you talking about? We, we know the story, Zechariah. We know what's going to happen. There ain't going to be a king that's going to sit and rule any government in Israel. We know that just a couple of generations later, the Romans are going to come in and sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Zechariah, what are you talking about here? Your enemies are going to be defeated. The Romans are going to whip you all. Well, maybe through the power of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah is talking about a different enemy. He's talking about enemies that oppress the soul. There's no government, there's no group, there is no king that can oppress us as much as those things that dwell within us. Those powers and principalities of the air that Paul talks about that oppress us and weigh upon us and rob us of our life. They're known as addiction, they're known as bitterness, they're known as being resentful. They express themselves in lives that are ruined by sinfulness and they cause us great despair those are the real enemies you see and Zechariah is proclaiming to the people those things will be defeated you see because what God is doing in his mercy to us there's an old cartoon about Pogo remember that some of y'all old enough remember him and the And Walt Kelly says in Pogo's lips one day, I have seen the enemy and it is us. The things within us that rob us of the life that God intended for us. Through what God is doing in his compassion, those things are defeated. Zechariah is proclaiming what will happen. The apostle Paul proclaims what did happen in Jesus Christ when he writes in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God are made yes in Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? All the things that are oppressing us, all the things that are robbing us of life, all the things that are defeating us and conquering us within our souls through God in Christ Jesus are defeated. Death is made dead. Sin is slain. Fear is caused to flee because what is about to happen, Zechariah says, because of the compassion and mercy of God. Now, I love history. And we were in Asheville yesterday and we went to some big old bookstore and my family went wandering around but I took like three steps in and I started looking at the American history section I mean I I just stood there and thumbed through books and I could have spent all my paycheck on that one little section right there I did bought one book but I, I love history particularly American history and and I was reading something last week or two weeks ago about Lincoln wrestling with the Emancipation Proclamation because he, was a, he had signed it and is about to supposedly take effect. 
But in that proclamation, not one slave was freed. But he was saying, you're all about to be free. As we win this war, you're going to be free. That's what Zechariah is saying. What God's about to do because of his compassionate mercy, you're about to be free. And what God does for us in Jesus Christ enables us to experience a freedom that releases us from all fear. Did you see what he said there? We can go and worship God free from fear. Now, the ancient Israelites, when they thought about worshiping God, they did so with much trembling and much trepidation. They, the, the temple was curtained off so that only one time a year the, the high priest could go in with his knees knocking to approach the Holy of Holies because they were so scared of what God might do to them if they took any missteps. But see what Zechariah is saying. Because of the tender mercy that I am offering through through what God's about to do. You have no reason to fear. I was fortunate enough in, back in my conference to hear Bishop Ken Carter preach. Now that's not our bishop here in this conference, but this is a good bishop too, by the way. But Bishop Ken Carter, he, he uh, had a heart for the poor because you see, he grew up the son of a sharecropper. And Bishop Carter talks about in a sermon that he preached on balancing behavior and belief. He talked about growing up as a son of a sharecropper. And, and he talked about a time that he and his, his brothers and sisters were playing in the yard of the owner of the farm. And the owner of the farm was drunk and he came out here, there and said, I'm going to teach you all to respect my property. And he ran and grabbed Ken and he said, I'm going to show you what it means to respect my property. I, I'm going to drown you in the rain barrel. And so he grabbed Ken Carter and he was starting to dunk him in the rain barrel. And the farmer's wife came out and grabbed him and said, don't do that. And he said, I'm just trying to make that boy learn some respect. And so from that point on, every time Ken Carter saw the owner of the farm, he made sure to say, yes, sir, no, sir, and thank you, sir. And the, the man said, I've, I've I learned you, didn't I? But Ken Carter said within my soul, yeah, I might have said yes, sir, no, sir, but I did not respect that man. And he said it was the same in church. This little country church I went to, the preacher yelled all the time about how God was going to get us, that we needed to fear God. We needed to fear what God would do to us if we took any misstep at all. And Ken Carter said, yeah, I may have obeyed God, but I didn't love him, respect him, or trust him. Thank God, Ken Carter discovered the tender compassion of God shown to us in Jesus Christ that freed him from that fear, that enabled him to receive a call to ministry, that enabled him to become a bishop, that enabled the United Methodist Church in that region to reach out to the poor like he had someone reach out to him in love. Y'all, what Zechariah is saying to us is this. We have no reason to fear God anymore. We have no reason to fear 
because God is a God of compassion and mercy. Look what happened in Matthew's gospel at the time of the crucifixion. Y'all might remember what indeed occurred. The curtain in the Holy of Holies was ripped asunder, meaning that we all had access to go to God through Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul says in Romans, nothing separates us from God's love in Jesus Christ. Zechariah is saying the mercy of God enables us to be free from any fear of God. God is very approachable. And I love how Zechariah carries on through this and emphasizing the mercy. And down near the end of this prophecy, he says this, by the tender mercy or the tender compassion of our God. And y'all, it's an interesting, fun word to say in Greek, so we're going to say it together. It is spanglion alios. Can you say that? You're going to spit in your mask when you say that, so you might have to wipe your face off after you do it. But can you say that with me? Spanglion alios. All right? All right, take your mask off and wipe the spit off for just a second. But yeah, spanglion alios. It's a wonderful word. It gives us the image of this. It means from the bowels. That's what it literally means. Remember we talked about when we discussed about having the heart of Jesus, how the center of who God is is this approachability, and the heart is the center of our will, the center of who we are. Well, in the ancient world, emotion was from our bowels or our, our gut. Now, I don't advise, gentlemen, yet you send a card to your beloved with pictures of your small intestine. That, that may not be the most romantic thing to do. But what this is saying to us is that from the center of who God is, in this tender spot, he has our lives before him. He has a tender spot for you and for me. It's always been this way. And the great prophet Hosea. He goes throughout the, the, the book talking about you all are gonna suffer because of what you have done. You're gonna about to experience the consequences of your actions. But then speaking for God, he says this, oh, how can I let you go, O Israel? How can I let you be treated in such a way? You can feel the compassion of God, the pathos of God, and the way he's describing the, the way God is tenderly feeling towards his people and, and grieving how they're going to experience the consequences of their living. And it grieves the very center of who God is. His heart is broken. We see this in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? When in Mark's gospel, hey, and a rich young ruler comes to him and, and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've tried to do everything right. And, and Mark writes this, and Jesus looked at the man and it said he loved him. His tender compassion going out to this man who's trying to seek what was right. And throughout the gospel narratives, Jesus would look compassionately and, and with, with tenderness on people who were broken and hurting. He would heal the sick. He would make the lame to walk, the blind to see. He would cast out those things that were oppressing folks and causing them to live 
disordered lives. The tender compassion of our God. Seen, I believe, most powerfully in the story that we all love so much, the story of the prodigal son. Last week, Jeff shared so wonderfully about that story and talking about the joy that was experienced at the end of that. Do you all remember that, how, how it's described? You know, here comes the son back home and the father's so happy and there's so much joy there that they, they kill the fatted calf. He puts a ring on his finger and, and, and shoes on his feet and they all have a great time. But I want to share that story in light of the tender compassion of this father. Remember the story. You remember how how it was described that this boy says to his father, I think I love your possessions more than I love you. So give me everything that is due to me and I'm going to consider my relationship with you as dead. And so the man gives his son what is due to him, and the son leaves and goes to the far country. And you all know the story. He loses everything in wild and riotous living. And when he has spent everything, and those who helped him spend everything see that this young boy is broke, they leave him destitute in a hog pen feeding the swine. When he comes himself, as the text says, he goes back home, realizing that even the hired hands have it better off than he did in that pig pen. And so going home with his speech prepared, disheveled and destitute and barefoot, he comes to his father and the father, while he's a long way off, you know the story, breaks all social norms, runs to the boy, embraces him with tender compassion And before the son can even get the words out of his mouth, the the dad says, quick, a ring for his finger, showing that he's still someone of authority. Shoes for her feet. He's no slave. He's my son. For this son who is dead is alive again. He's lost, has now been found. Showing the tender compassion of our God. We all need that, don't we? Don't we? You know, I'm no art critic, but I believe that Rembrandt was the greatest painter that ever lived. I should know I made a B in high school art. I made the only B in my high school art class. Everyone else made an A. So I'm no artist, but, you know, I like the works of Rembrandt, and, you know, he is one of the greatest ever, in my opinion, the greatest ever. But, you know, what I know, stick men are a challenge for me. But if you know the story of Rembrandt, it's a powerful story of God working in a life. He was a master painter, well appreciated in his time. He was a printmaker. In fact, he's probably known more in his lifetime as a printmaker than he was as a painter. That, He made lots of money, but he had lots of trouble. He spent more than he earned. He made bad investments. And he also got caught up in uh, adulterous affairs that caused him great heartache. But also he had some struggles that weren't of his making. His wife, who he married at a young age, who he dearly loved, died. 
They had several children perish at a young age. In fact, the only child that they had uh, to live to adulthood died just a little while before Rembrandt died. The only child to survive him is a daughter that he had from one of these other women. Rembrandt used all sorts of subjects for his, his material to paint, you know, scenery. He did lots of uh, portraits. But oftentimes he turned to Scripture and he would paint different scenes from the Bible and oftentimes including himself in those pictures. In fact, he, he painted one picture entitled The Prodigal in the Far Country. And it's a picture of him in that picture holding a, some sort of drink and having a pretty woman at his, at his side and he's there laughing and smiling. But near the end of his life, he painted, in my mind, his most poignant work of art. It's called The Return of the Prodigal. I think it's going to be on the screen here in a second. The Return of the Prodigal. There you see the boy come home with his head laying in the chest of his father, disheveled, dirty, one shoe totally gone, the other on the foot in shreds. And there is the boy leaning into the chest of his compassionate father. And Rembrandt did something very interesting here. Can't maybe tell it too much in that, that shot, but one hand is larger than the other. Now, we don't know exactly the reason of that, but one hand is more masculine, the other is more feminine. And some have speculated that this is showing the fatherly and the motherly side of God embracing this sinner come home. All of who God is and his compassion embracing this child come home. Rembrandt painted this work of art just a little while before he died because he knew that for much of his life he was in the far country squandering the inheritance called his life. And the only hope that he had was to fling his, himself in the arms of this tender, compassionate God who would receive him and embrace him. Well, it's the same for us. No matter who we are, no matter how successful we have been, in some ways we have all lived in the far country. In some ways we have all squandered this inheritance called the gift of this life that God has given to us. We, we profess that most communion Sundays when we say, Forgive me. We've been a disobedient church. We have not obeyed your laws. We have not done your will. We have not heard the cry of, cry of the needy. We have broken your law. We have all lived in the far country. And the only hope that we have at the end of each day, and indeed at the end of our lives, is to fling ourselves in the arms 
of this tenderly compassionate God who will welcome us home. So what are you waiting for? Come, kneel before your father. Come home to his tender compassion so you can truly come home for Christmas. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. O tenderly compassionate God, our Father who longs to embrace us in love, may we humbly kneel before you to experience your compassion that is so tender, so loving, so that we can be free, free from fear, free from sin, free from anything that oppresses us. So at this Christmas, we can find our hearts true home in you. We ask this in and through the one who came to set us free, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.